Hi, and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. I'm Liv Bailey, a public programmes curator here at the gallery, and today we're going to be looking back at Whitechapel's relationship with performance art. Whitechapel Gallery has a long history of platforming some of the foremost performance artists of the 20th and 21st centuries, notably through the 2002 to 2006 series A Short History of Performance 1, 2, 3 and 4. This series included live performances of historic works by Martha Rosler, Andrea Fraser, The Atlas Group, Stuart Brisley, Herman Nitsch and Carolee Schneeman, among others. This autumn 2022 season is a celebration of that relationship, with all of our current exhibitions focusing on performance and the moving body, including our archival show Out of the Margins, an examination of the institutional adoption of live art, as well as the large-scale show Moving Bodies, Moving Images, which brings together a selection of short films exploring the intersection of dance, choreography and moving image. And finally, we have a commission by performance artist Sadie Cha, who presents an immersive installation where sculptures, textiles and paintings act as tricksters and shapeshifters in and amongst a large-scale fabric house. Today, we're joined by artists, curators and programmers who have contributed to the UK's flourishing performance art scene since the 90s. The 1990s to the 2010s was a pivotal period for London's art scene, during which live performance moved from an underground art form to one acknowledged by the establishment. Out of the Margins revisits this history, mapping seminal moments within the development of the live art scene in London. The exhibition examines the creation of the Live Art Development Agency, launched in 1999 by Lois Keaton and Catherine Ugwu, whose successful advocacy within the Arts Council granted them the funds to set up the organisation. Lois Keaton will tell us about her experience of setting up live art programmes at the ICA and LADA, and Whitechapel's asymmetry curatorial fellow Erin Lee will discuss the process of curating out of the margins. We'll also hear from artists Hatain Patel and Leah Clements, who recently participated in Performance Now, a talk at the gallery that questioned how far live art has come and what's in store for the future of the field. So first off, let's hear from Lois Keaton. Lois co-founded the Live Art Development Agency in 1999 and served as its director until 2021. Prior to this, she was director of live arts at the Institute of Contemporary Arts and performance art officer at the Arts Council of Great Britain. Live Art Development Agency. I wondered if we could just talk about the terminology there and if there is any distinction between live art and performance art for you. Yes, there are distinctions between live art and performance art. Um, so before, I see performance art very much as a practice that came out of the studio, came out of the gallery, when visual artists uh, rejected the ob- object and rejected the market in terms of their bodies as the sort of site and subject and material of their practice. But parallel to that, around the same time, artists are also sort of playing around with the rules of theatre, really. How can theatre be made? Artists are also playing around at the edges of dance, um, looking at sort of uh, moving image and all of those kind of things. And so it's sort of like a hotbed of experimentation as a way, sort of performance poetry, um, activist practices, and artists who are sort of coming from different sort of non-Western uh, traditions. And there was a sense that there was a kind of very diverse pool of activity that was sort of not particularly recognised either kind of critically, uh, culturally, or in terms of resources and support. So for me, live art is very much a sort of a cultural strategy to include practices that were previously excluded. 
It's interesting that you say performance art, you see it as kind of coming from, from within the, the institution because I think I always think of performance art as being almost like a reaction to the gallery uh, and something that maybe kind of came about around the 50s, 60s as very much external to the institution. So I wonder if you can kind of talk I, about I think that. it was absolutely external to the institutions, absolutely. It was artists uh, and, it, and it was artists sort of uh, rejecting the institution and rejecting the sort of the body politic in the widest, in the widest sense of the word, particularly artists from... Um, South Central America and the US and artists in Central Europe are sort of protesting the sort of Vietnam War and other kind of regimes and other sort of oppressions and stuff like that. So it's very much uh, artists who um, saw the, the, the institution as part of that establishment, really, and, and they, they sort of saw themselves very much as part of the kind of counterculture. Um, but I see, I see the work as coming from the gallery, not necessarily the institutional gallery, but the, the gallery as in, I see it sort of coming from the, the world of visual, the visual arts. You were kind of, I guess, amongst the first institutional programmers of live art. And I wonder what the kind of creative landscape was like at the time when you're at the ICA, when you're at Arts Council. Um, the landscape was, well, it was sort of pre-YBAs, um, that, that period. So, so visual arts was still not particularly a sort of, um, it's sort of, you know, widespread, um, sort of acknowledged, recognised, sort of mainstream practice in the way that, you know, artists, many artists today are sort of household names. Um, so it was a different sort of, different conditions in that sense. And the area of practice that I'm talking about, live art, was still very, very marginalised. So performance art was still marginalised within visual culture. Experimental theatre was completely marginalised within the world of theatre, really, uh, particularly through Arts Council funding. It was incredibly traditional. Uh, most theatres, shall I say all theatres? No, most <laughs> theatres um, only considered what would happen on a stage um, to be a play. The idea of theatre, and theatre is a very different thing from a play. Yeah. Uh, so the idea of that was sort of um, an anathema to, to, to a lot of them. Different ways of working, different ways of producing art was still, still um, very um, challenging. When Catherine and I took over the ICA, it was pretty, the performance program was pretty dead, really. Mm -hmm. You know, for the first uh, kind of like first few months, I mean, you know, we put on work, really amazing work that we brought over from the States or whatever. And, you know, nobody came. I remember standing out on the mall, looking up and down the mall, thinking, is anybody coming to see this right. work, you know? Um, and, but within a couple of years, really, everything sold out as soon as we announced the programmes and stuff like that. So everything did really well. Artists sort of met each other. All kinds of collaborations came out of that. All kinds of inspirations. People, you know, uh, you know, we put on certain artists and people sort of, uh, other artists saw them and sort of changed their practice overnight. But we were also... Um, we were also commissioning a lot of work and we were also um, setting out all kinds of different initiatives really to encourage um, artists, particularly non-white artists, uh, to feel that the ICA was theirs, mm -hmm. um, that it was somewhere they could come as audiences but also that somewhere they could, could come as artists. Critics were different. Critics were really different. Uh, visual arts critics, theatre critics, still very much sort of uh, stuck in the mud, stuck in traditional ways of thinking. And then you eventually left the ICA to set up the Live Art Development Agency. What were you aiming to do there that didn't exist in an art gallery? Well, the critical word there is agency, um, really. That, and that was what was really Im Im important about, about, about LADA, was the agency bit, the development bit and the, and the agency bit. So the Arts Council in London were aware that there was all of this happening. They didn't necessarily have the capacity or the expertise to be able to um, support 
um, uh, all of this proliferation of, of, of culture. And so they decided to set up um, or to delegate responsibilities to agencies. And the first one was live art because... Um, uh, it's a kind of live art's always a guinea pig for things, so they thought they'd sort of try it with live art, and they were very much aware of the work that we've been doing at the ICA in terms of supporting artists, not just presenting artists. Thank you so much, Lois, for, for joining us today. It's been great to talk to you. Whitechapel hosted a conversation with Hatem Patel and Leah Clements here at the gallery on the 20th of October. Hatem Patel works across film, performance, painting and costume design to look at identity and language, challenging common assumptions based on how we look or where we come from. Leah Clements is an artist from East London whose practice spans performance, film, photography, writing, installation and other media. Here are some sound bites from that conversation. I think both of you kind of do something quite um, personal with your performance art and... Um, and, this, and I suppose in general there's something very personal about performance art and kind of subjecting your body to the gaze of an audience, whoever they might be. And both of you are kind of using your work as a means for exploring elements of your identity. And I wondered how far you felt like it gave you a means to kind of control your perception of you or if that's always to an extent kind of in the eye of the beholder. I think I definitely had a strong desire to have some control but I think it was in response to feeling like a realisation that I had no control. You know, like, you know, being in a context where you, you become more and more aware that you have very little control over how you're seen or perceived and you're kind of marginalised with very, you know, s strong, directive, narrowing uh, forces. I felt like the baseline in my practice before I could think about anything else was to have to deal with that. And, um, and it's, it's kind of still that, you know. And, um, and, and in that sense, you know, in terms of where the history of live or performance art came from, I can definitely relate to that in the sense that, you know, and you mentioned e economics, it's, I feel like it sort of came from a rejection of power structures, you know, whether it's the gallery system and the art market or... or um, it, what, how marginalised people and bodies are seen and controlled or whatever it might be. And, um, and so I think I can definitely, st I can relate to that rejection of, or, or you know, a desire to reject control, control and power structures. And whether that's a social gaze that I, I've, that I feel, or whether it's the art power structures, institutional power, that you that you feel controlled by sometimes or a lot of times if you're a freelance artist um, and all of those things somehow and, and the and the body and the performance somehow f still f feels like it has it's um, relevant in some, in those parts. Of it. I think there's quite often a sense with like performance art and with film and anything where you're kind of using your body as your tool, I suppose. Um, people quite often talk about like politicizing the body um and I think both of you deal with quite political themes but does does it always have to kind of meet that expectation can it just be abstract or aesthetic does it always kind of have to meet I think there's this kind of standard that gets applied to it and I wonder if that's almost a pressure sometimes yeah definitely um 
I've definitely like been invited to either show or make work by people who've read the disability part of my practice and not actually looked at my artwork and then seen it and gone, oh, that's quite, um, it's quite intense, you know. <laughs> like not really expected that. I'd expect it to be more, um, I don't know, like super friendly, don't be scared of disabled people sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, I actually I stopped performing in a gallery for a long time because I felt really commodified. You know, for, whereas the early kind of performance I was doing was durational stuff uh, in a gallery space. And it was me performing uh, alone. And, and it was kind of walk in, walk out as you would a gallery, if you like. And um, yeah, I just started to feel like, Ugh. you know, kind of like being looked at. And, yeah. um, and like, so I like stopped for many years. And uh, I think this performance that we did in the gallery, uh, in the National Gallery, is the first, one of the few performances in recent times that I've gone back into the gallery because I felt like we found a way to have more control over how we're seen or um, yeah have more control over our agency in that space I guess. So you've all kind of come into live art at different points in its history I guess and 30 years ago it was probably quite radical to have performance art in a gallery space and now it's become kind of mainstream, like the Tate has the tanks and there's a whole space dedicated to performance. And I kind of wondered if you felt like there's been a shift in what live art is in the sense that does it have to kind of be more sort of sanitised and, and less radical to kind of find a space in institutions? Has it become a bit less daring? Again, like you kind of talked about feeling like it's become commodified. Do you think that's kind of changed since the course of your career? I think there's loads of daring work still out there. It might not be necessarily getting being put in institutions, but... Um... I think there's space in institutions for radical stuff as well. I mean, I think it's a bit... I think we also have to think about what does radical mean, because there was a point in time where that meant just provocation. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you think about, like, the square or something, <laughs> where you're just pushing people, is that what... I don't think that is what you mean when you're saying radical, um, but I think that there has been a shift away from some more problematic stuff, um, which does mean that people who are making more radical work are able to enter spaces a bit more easily. But then, yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends on what we want to say and do or like encourage or try and get out of an audience or share. Um, yeah, what do we mean by radical? <laughs> I mean, I understand radical to mean like um, a, a push against or a, a reaction against something that is like, you know, institutional, institutionally or typically embedded in that doesn't work for us. You know what I mean? Or that is, like I said, like kind of a reaction against power structures that generally keep us as artists or people or whatever under, under control. Uh, and so, you know, it was de I, feel, I feel like it was deemed radical because of the audacity to do something against that um, system of control or seemingly against, or at least the intention was to do something against that. And, and you could, you know, by that sort of look or definition, you could maybe still think of that now in terms of thinking, 
what are the power structures now and what are the movements or attempts to move against those power structures towards fairness, you know, which it still was there. You know, any radical stuff was, to me, still felt like it was at heart a frustration towards things not being fair and kind of, um, you know, whether you're, where it meant a, re a reaction to how your body's seen or objectified or controlled or financially or socially and kind of, it's kind of, um, it's almost something that's used against you, isn't it? If, you're, if, you, if you dare to speak out against or, or, or act out against the system, then you, you're a radical or a troublemaker or something. But actually, it's not really, is it? It's just... A lot of what is radical shouldn't be radical, yeah. should it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about all the institutions, of which we are, of course, in one right now, uh, I think one thing that kind of strikes me is that, obviously performance art that is kind of performed live and not captured on film is kind of um, avoids like valuation and collection and it's sort of liberated from like the capitalist market um, which of course kind of ignores the financial dependencies of the artist um, and then it, it potentially becomes more dependent on funding opportunities is that in some ways kind of a more precarious position for artists and more entrenched in capitalism than art that you can create, sell and kind of take charge of the transaction? Yeah, I think there's like wider questions around um, how do artists survive and particularly ones who are showing work in public art galleries more than um, commercial ones or not commercial ones at all. Um, yeah, I mean, my immediate thought about what does performance art evade um, the market uh, is no <laughs> because there are people like Marina Abramovich or like um, you know you can you can sell the documentation of an artwork or you can um, I don't know like Tino Segal meets people in a warehouse and whisper something in their ear <laughs> to sell a performance um, there, there are ways of doing it if you want to and I don't think it is inherently um, outside of that structure and then yeah exactly the next thought is like you said um how are artists surviving if not that I don't know, really know the answer to that question um I wanted to ask Lois but I don't know but I suspect that artists are paid less now in general for general like public art commissions um that's my feeling or understanding but I can't verify that against too much previous experience um yeah I mean, this idea of kind of um, the saleability of performance or, or whatever it is, again, I think it still boils down to fairness uh, in terms of like, it's, I think in terms of who get often it's the creator of works that are the most exploited um, in the sense that it's usually everyone else who is earning dollar from it, you know what I mean? Like, whether it's in an institution or whether imagery is used to sell a poster because of the wheelchair or, you know, this sort of whatever it is, it's like, so I think it's a, you know, you've, as an artist, you've, it's that, it's not that your drive is like necessarily, or it might be, it's fine if it is, a capitalist, I want to get money for it. It's like, it's just wanting it to be fair. You know, when you're the creator of this work and it's your body and all those things, it, this, it's obviously it's not fair if um, 
people are benefiting from it and, and you're not, you know. A lot of the, I guess, um, financial income from live art does come from that kind of post-event documentation, um, photos or film works or sketches or preparatory documents. Um, ignoring the kind of financial element of that, um, I think, you know, there's something around galleries, including Whitechapel, who have an archival show on at the moment, um, their desire to kind of contextualise performance art through these sort of um, documentational objects, um, which might not ever have kind of been afforded the status of an artwork during the lifetime of that piece. Um, do you think it's important to document performance art? Um, does it, is it a really central kind of part of, um, of recording something that's really important and might not otherwise have a legacy? Or does it kind of lose its immediacy as soon as you keep a record of it? I used to think the latter and now I think the former. Like, I used to really buy into that, um, like, moment. And I still feel it, of course, it's a thing. Um, but, I don't know, being chronically ill and so many of my mates being chronically ill and just being very much in that context, um, so many people are just not going to be able to access it. And access beyond disability as well, like um, economic or um, if you don't feel safe going to the area that the particular thing is happening in because of your race or because you're, I don't know, you're appearing in a way that um, your gender or sexuality may come into question and be targeted. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to um, keep that away from anyone, you know, and I want anyone who wants to see my work to be able to see it. I agree with you 100% on the accessibility thing. You know, like, my, my bottom line for creating work, whatever it's in, is can my family come and see it? And, you know, that might be a... I don't, it, predominantly, it's not a physical barrier. It's like they would just never, they would just never go into an art gallery or into a theatre. You know, they feel it's not for them. They're intimidated by that. And, you know, they come to my shows, but... <laughs> no matter how many of my shows they come to, it doesn't encourage them to go to other shows, <laughs> you know, if I'm not there with them. And so, you know, that accessibility for me is, is really essential, but, but it's not for everyone. And I, I feel like um, it should be up to the artist. If the artist is creating that live work and they decide this is something that can only be in this live moment, I don't want any documentation, that's, that's fair play. You know, that's... that's of course you should be allowed that. Uh, but, like, you know, I just... And then, even if you do create, whether it's documentation or another version of it, which is his own thing, I do sometimes make film versions of works that might have started live, which are its own thing, which don't have to have anything to do with the live thing. They're its own thing. And even documentation, you know, we're all intelligent human beings. We understand it's documentation and that we've all experienced something live before. Um, and so we understand that being live there in the moment is different to this thing that you're seeing on YouTube or, or whatever. So I, at the, I don't have any problem with um, it existing in different formats. And I also think it's really important for things to be recorded and in history, mm. you know, particularly when it's actions and art and activity of typically marginalised people, actually. 
And so I think it's important these things are remembered. Finally, we spoke to Erin Lee, assistant curator on Out of the Margins. Erin is the Asymmetry Curatorial Fellow here at the gallery. We sat down with Erin to talk about her experience of curating the exhibition. Out of the Margins opened in Whitechapel's archival space in August. The exhibition kind of takes the 1990s as its starting point. What was it about that moment that's so pivotal for live art? If we look at look a little bit back at history, actually since the late 1960s, uh, performance art was already featured in institutions. For instance, Cesar was having a live painting performance, which was intervened by Stuart Bruce Lee. So, um, but if we look at 1990s, that's when really major visual art institutions started to program performance art more systematically, like whether to feature it in group exhibitions or three-year projects. So it really, that was when performance art, instead of existing more sporadically in more underground situations, was brought out of the margins. Whitechapel, I think, has always had a very kind of conscious relationship with live art and recognised quite early on like how impactful it could be. I wonder if you could talk about some of the most pivotal performances that have been hosted here at the gallery. Mm, yes, so in the series A Short History of Performance, we had, for instance, Meet Joy by Carola Schneemann, which was the seminal work from 1960s. So when it was restaged, it's already like four decades later and the whole context and also Carolee was in a different stage of her life so everything has changed so much but the energy the very central impact of that work really stayed in Whitechapel Gallery and there's also Semiotics of the Kitchen by Martha Rosler which was first made in the 70s but in the reenactment at Whitechapel Gallery, she actually, instead of performing herself, invited several British younger women to present the work. So this deliberate choice actually gave the work more contemporary relevance and also highlighted the feminist nature of the work. Right, and I think you can really see in the archival show the development of a canon in progress and performances becoming renowned in their own right and deserving of re-performances and restagings and documentation and I think it's super interesting to see that process sped up on a scale that you don't see with other kinds of visual art. It's such a rich show with costume pieces, videos, uh, documentation, letters, all kinds of things. What's your favorite piece from the show? So I have a favorite artwork that was Andrea Fraser's official welcome. This was a lecture performance in the second episode of A Short History of Performance at Whitechapel Gallery. So instead of, you know, the director of Whitechapel delivering a speech, instead the artist Andrea Fraser, she played the role of many different characters in the art world, like the museum director, the curator, the artist herself, patrons. So she basically smoothly switched between all these roles by switching posture, the tone and the, the, the attitude. So it's a very satirical and witty comment on the exaggerated praise we give to artists in the art world, but then also the fake modesty some artists uh, give in return in social context. Thank you so much, Sharon. It was great to Thank chat you, with Liv. you.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the performance-based exhibitions here at the gallery. Zadie Char's commission House Gods, Animal Guides and Five Ways to Forgiveness is on show at the gallery until April 30th, 2023. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out the rest of the Here Now series available on Spotify, Acast and all other major platforms. <laughs>